Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics, brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. In an age of fractional reserve, Bitcoin is bringing back full reserve. And with Swan.com, you can sign up and do a recurring purchase plan to regularly accumulate Bitcoin. And that helps you deal with the volatility over the longer term. So with Swan.com or the Swan app, you can do recurring purchase plans. You can do one-time buys. And Swan also offers free custody in your own legally owned trust account. Of course, not your keys, not your coins. And there's also free automated withdrawals to your own self-custody. So make sure you take advantage of this. So after you've set up your purchasing plan or done a smash buy, go and learn how to self-custody your coins, either with a phone wallet or get a hardware device. Swan.com makes it really easy. And if you use swan.com slash Levera, you'll get $10 of free Bitcoin dropped into your account when you start stacking with Swan. Mempool.space is the leading Bitcoin blockchain explorer. You can see the blockchain, you can see the mempool, you can see the lightning network, you can see all kinds of things. And they have recently released version 2.5.0 of the open source software. So you can run this yourself. You can use the new features such as the block direction switch, the lightning explorer, mind block visualization, historical fiat prices, and so much more. Now, if you are with an enterprise, make sure you go and check out the enterprise features available such as customized mempool instances with your company's branding, increased API limits, and more over at mempool.space slash enterprise. Now, rejoining me on the show today is my friend Peter St. Onge. We talk a little bit about the world de-dollarizing. What does it look like? What does it mean? How long could this process actually take? We also talk about Cantillon effects, the fictional reserve banking system of the world today, and whether the market truly chose it or whether we were actually forced into this system, as well as various arguments back and forth between the camps. We also talk a little bit about how Bitcoin is really what most people think of as money. So I think it's a little bit paradoxical, but I hope you find this episode informative and educational. Peter, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back, Stefan. You've been blowing up recently. I love the videos you've been doing. So great job with that and uh, just really helping explain things from an Austrian perspective for a lot of the people out there who I'm sure are very confused with what's going on. Yeah, these are confusing times. We've got you know a whole lot of chickens coming home to roost at well between the banks, uh, the inflation, the economy, and now all this talk of de-dollarization of other countries uh, getting out of the US dollar. Yeah, and I think what we see is a lot of people all with their own different narratives. And I think it's difficult because people don't know who to believe, right? Because it could be somebody who's got a newsletter to sell or it could be somebody who has a political message that they would rather portray. And I mean, not that having a newsletter is wrong or having a political <laughs> message is bad either. Of course, you and I both have similar things to promote in a way. But I think it's more about being able to think through from a sound perspective what's really going on, right? And I think this, obviously, I think the whole theme with de-dollarization has been very prominent recently and we've seen a lot of articles. But, you know, at the same time, we could say, look, hang on, if you look back over the years, there have been articles here and there that come up over time or that you'll see, a, you know, a, an announcement. Oh, look, these other countries are doing a deal not denominated in the US dollar. Is this the end of the dollar or is this the start of de-dollarization? So can you tell us a little bit your, of your thoughts on this whole de-dollarization, de-dollarization idea as well as give us 
like some kind of confidence level about it or uh, the the pace here right are we are we just still in gradually we're not really in the gr- suddenly part of the gradually then suddenly yeah i mean de-dollarization has been going on for a long time uh but it's been a really uh sort of slow pace and you know i think what's changed now sort of looking at it from an austrian lens meaning that uh, you're sort of cutting through it and you know analyzing it economically and what are the moving parts on the inside and the last time that we had, I think, a real threat to the dollar was the 1970s, right? We had double-digit inflation for a number of years. But this time, I think it's very different from the 1970s, and there are a couple reasons. Uh, number one is what the U.S. did last year, seizing uh, Russian central bank assets as a form of sanctions over Ukraine, that really crossed the line for a lot of countries. That had never been done. Even during the Cold War, the U.S. did not seize dollars out of foreign central banks. The, the USSR kept their dollars at the New York Fed, despite you know, having proxy wars in pretty much every single continent. Uh, so that was really, uh, I think, irresponsible. You know, there had always been sort of a gentleman's agreement that even if we're having a fight over this, it was in the U.S. interest to keep everybody in the world addicted to the dollar. And for whatever reason, uh, they threw that away. And so now you're seeing countries, you know, just this morning, ASEAN, the the collection of Southeast Asian countries, the uh, president of Indonesia, he was specifically saying, look what happened to Russia. We need to get away from the dollar. You know, if you are a in Indonesia, for example, the prospect that the U.S. is going to be displeased with you for some reason and they're actually going to take your central bank assets, you know, which is uh, that's the most important thing that's underlying confidence in in uh, in your economy. Uh, that is a huge threat to them. I think Americans have trouble appreciating uh, what a big deal the bullying, the, you know, using the dollar to sort of push countries around. And that was one thing when the U.S. felt like they sort of had some control. You know, you could sort of predict what the rules are. Uh, But I think Russia just caught everybody by surprise. The sanctions were so complete, so aggressive, so fast. Uh, They were done, I think, really without consultation. Uh, So that put, I think, a, a big new risk on the dollar. You know, a second related point is the U.S. is retreating from the world. Uh, The Afghan debacle, I think, communicated to a lot of countries that even if the U.S. wants to stay involved in your region, they're not able to. Uh, They've lost their edge. And that threatens one of the main things that is underpinning uh, the U.S. dollar's use internationally, which is the so-called petrodollar deal whereby uh, Gulf countries, especially Gulf oil producers, they continue using the dollar and exchange. The U.S. kind of handles their security, right? Those countries have long been threatened by Iran. Uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran are uh, regional competitors, and they compete pretty fiercely. Uh, and so that was kind of the deal traditionally. And we can see already the results of that, where you know Saudi is now cozying, cozying up with China. Uh, they're talking about joining, you know, China's trade bloc, the uh, the Shanghai group. Uh, and then I think a third point here that sort of magnifies all of these is that the U.S. is only half what it used to be. Right. The 1970s, the U.S. accounted for about 40 percent of world GDP. Now it's more like 22 percent. 
So if the U.S. is threatening countries, if it's, you know, pushing them around on foreign policy, even sometimes domestic policies, things like union policy or uh, sort of social <laughs> policies, if they're doing that in the context where the U.S. is only 22 percent of the world, there comes a point where a lot of countries say, you know, we don't necessarily need to break up, but we should start seeing other people. <laughs> yeah, I think it's well put. There's, there are all these effects going against the U.S., right, as you said. Um, now, there's, there maybe there are some points that are still in favor of the U.S., we could say. Um, but I'm also curious to get your view on this whole idea. There's been a popular notion promoted by various people, even people like Lynn Alden have said, actually, it was not a good thing that the U.S. dollar was the world reserve currency, that actually it hollowed out some of the local industry. Now, I think from an Austrian perspective, we could look at that and say, well, Hang on a second. We're thinking here about the Cantillon effect. And if we're thinking of the Cantillon effect, he who is closer to the monetary spigot is the winner in that scenario. So therefore, isn't the winner really those people who are close to the monetary spigot? And so couldn't we argue then that American banks, American construction companies, anyone who's getting that first loan or the American government is who has benefited but I'm curious how, how you see that. Would you agree or disagree, or do you have a different take there? Yeah, uh, so Lynn is, is brilliant. Uh, I love her work. Uh, she has a lot of amazing insights, knows a lot of stuff. Um, and I think that's correct, that we've had sort of cantillon effects where the people who are producing the money, specifically the Federal Reserve and American commercial banks, they have benefited massively from this system. I think a second question is what happened to American workers, right? Whether the U.S. dollar was sort of propped up and made too expensive, and therefore those guys lost their jobs and, uh, you know, the factories went to China. I think there the probably, I don't think it had a systemic effect necessarily on the dollar value. And the reason is that the Fed and the banks sort of collectively goal seek the dollar they're, the main incentive they're responding to is that voters get upset if the dollar goes up too quick. And so they sort of start with, you know, the way the chessboard is. In other words, you know, what is the price level right now? What is the exchange rate right now? And then they try to not disturb that too much, um, you know, so that they can continue siphoning resources from people. Uh, one of the metaphors uh, I used in the videos is you have a reservoir and you have all of these new dollars flowing into that reservoir, dollars produced by the Fed and produced by the commercial banks. And if that's matched by a river flowing out towards foreigners, then the banks and the Fed can create a whole lot more dollars. Uh, and then, of course, you know, if you re lose reserve currency status, in other words, if foreigners don't want so many dollars, then that uh, river comes uh, flooding back in. But I think the question that Lynn is addressing is what is the level of that reservoir, right? Is that reservoir a high level uh, is it, or, you know, is it a low level uh, where, where the dollar is paradoxically relatively strong? Uh, and I think that that question uh, has a lot more to do with the Fed's own you know, sort of political goals. Uh, it wants to maintain its independence. The people who work at the Fed tend to go back and forth. There's kind of a revolving door with Wall Street. And so uh, they know who butters their bread. They know who's going to, you know, Janet Yellen was getting $67,500 for a speech. Uh, so, you know, at, at, at some point, there's other incentives that intrude uh, rather than them just trying to, you know, keep on the good side of voters, and not make noter, uh, voters uh, notice the inflation.
Right. And I think you are certainly right to point out this whole revolving door factor that we see commercial banks and regulators. Often there's this relationship, let's say, where maybe if you perform well in one of them, you may get a job in the other. And that if you play nicely, you can have a nice career in this, you know, you can become a person who is well regarded in this industry that you were senior in the bank. And then maybe you go and become senior in the regulator and you help from that perspective. And maybe after that career is done, oh, now you get a nice speaking tour, you get these nice, you know, you get given awards, you're sort of praised. So there's certainly a professional career aspect to what happens for these people right and so they want to they want to keep the system going um and then obviously those of us who are let's say outside the system we're trying to critique the system because we are against it for you know many reasons uh, listeners this of this podcast uh well aware it puts you into a position where you are having to understand and explain all these different programs, right? So the latest one of which is the BTFP, Bank Term Funding Program. But, you know, there's all these different programs and they have different effects. And so then the challenge becomes, as an Austrian is trying to understand the seen and the unseen, right? It's not just, oh, look, this government gave a bailout for this bank or this depositor and now look oh it's all good now because they saved the depositors and oh that's the end of the story well no hold on there's no free lunch that money or those resources came from somewhere someone somewhere is paying the price so if you could i guess if as you look at what's going on bank funding program and you know what's happening with rates what's happening with the fed who is losing out? Where is the cost? Where is the downside being taken? And where is it being hidden? Yeah, so I think the sucker at the table, you know, when we're talking about central banking and our uh, fiat financial system, the sucker at the table is always the taxpayers, right? Uh, whenever things roll downhill, they keep rolling and rolling, everybody gets out of the way, and then finally they land in taxpayers' lap in the form of trillions of dollars of additional debt, which in theory the taxpayers will someday be responsible for. And I think that's really where the Fed is going today. You know, the Fed has a choice on interest rates. That's the main thing they're using to choke the economy to try to cancel out the inflation that government spending caused. And within that, they have two choices. They can try to uh, raise rates and cut off inflation, but they know that that's going to cause more distress from banks, because the main reason why banks are in trouble right now is because central banks all over the world yanked up rates um, so quickly. Uh, or alternatively, they could lower rates, which would take some of the pressure off the banks, but then inflation would take off. And I think central banks are aware that, you know, inflation is how they're judged. Uh, if they let inflation go on too long, then the voters will tell the politicians to rein them in uh, and they'll lose control. And they believe very strongly that, you know, they are the godlike <laughs> managers of the economy. And, you know, we're all uh, too stupid to run our own lives. So I think that the way that the Fed uh, is trying to navigate that is to say, well, yes, we're going to raise rates. Yes, it's going to you know cause a lot of trouble for banks. Uh, it's going to choke off the economy. Jerome Powell has been very clear. He said there are too many jobs. <laughs> the The goal is to strangle the economy. Uh, and then I, you know, based on sort of recent behavior, uh, they'll then jump in with trillions of dollars of additional bailouts. The taxpayers, you know, if you cloak it with enough, uh, what is it? The, um, BTFP. Uh, I have to remember that somebody had a comical, uh, uh, sort of <laughs> words that he used to remember that, but I don't necessarily want to repeat them on this show, but right. So, you know, if they can cloak it with enough programs and, you know, most voters really, 
don't understand the financial system. In many ways, uh, the system is designed so that it's very, very difficult to understand. Uh, I think many Fed economists don't even understand the system. Uh, and so they can get away with that. You know, it's sort of a shell game where they can pile trillions of dollars onto voters and voters don't even realize they did it. Yeah. Uh, one other question that I'm curious to hear how you would explain this, because the paradigm that a Keynesian and a neoclassical person might be thinking is, oh, there's this trade-off of inflation and interest rates, and that oh, you if you have higher, you know, one goes higher, the other should go lower. In their in their view, right? That's in their view. Now, as an Austrian, we don't necessarily agree with that view. That's also, I guess, you could also say that's known as Phillips curve thinking. And we could even argue that, uh, you know, as I'm sure econ- economics uh, teachers and professors have spoken about, how the 70s maybe that was a refutation. Stagflation in the 70s maybe was a refutation of this. Phillips curve thinking. So isn't it weird now that people are slipping back into Phillips curve thinking? They they just believe, they just accept this idea that, oh, just raise the interest rates and we can lower inflation again. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's disappointing. It's like uh, we've learned nothing. You know, something that we've been pushing since really the beginning of the inflation is you know, leave the economy alone. Don't, don't, don't try and crush it. Don't try to wipe out businesses. Uh, normalize rates. You know, obviously they were bumping along at about 0%, and that is not healthy. Uh, you end up getting a lot of malinvestments, uh, a lot of crappy investments that have to be liquidated. Uh, but, you know, what we've been saying is, no, instead of doing that, simply rein in the government spending. Uh, if worldwide, if, if Europe, if the US, if Japan, if these countries would have cut their spending, then the inflation would have calmed back down. You would not, not have had as much um, money flowing into the economy, and you wouldn't have actually caused this collateral damage. You certainly would, have, would not have caused these kinds of bank panics. You know, cutting, when we say there's no free lunch, one pretty close to free lunch is cutting government spending, right? I mean, government takes resources that could have been used for something useful. They could have done good in the world, and instead it squanders it, uh, you know, because of the political process where, you know, it sort of jumps up and then plunges and up and plunges. Uh, the government is a massive source of instability, even aside from the garbage that they spend the money on. Uh, so that obviously would have been the correct solution. That's what the Fed should have done. Uh, there's this popular narrative now that, you know, Jerome Powell, by gum, he tried his best and, you know, he's just making the most of a tough situation. That is complete garbage. He could have stood up from the beginning and say, no, we are not going to buy all of these trillions of dollars of bonds. You government have to cut other garbage you spend. If COVID is such a deal, then cut the other crap and focus on COVID. But we are not going to enable your addiction. He didn't do that. Instead, what he said was there are too many jobs. In other words, he did not confront his master. He treated the voters like dogs. Right. He's just selling them out and saying, well, you, sure. you wear the cost, right? Yeah, um, exactly. And it's difficult because a lot of them don't understand how they're being screwed. They don't understand the ways in which the resources are being transferred from the private sector to the government. And so even though we look at, we try to understand the impact of these different, whether it's a bailout or these government programs or making the depositors whole, that, because in each scenario, there's different ways things could go, right? I mean, in 2013, in Cyprus, it was bail-ins. It was depositors yeah. were paying, were taking a colloquially or a, the, the nice uh, word is a haircut. Right, yeah, is the nice right. term, but actually it means you lose money. Right, like if you had, a, if you were a depositor with a lot of money in the bank, you lost money. That was, you know, that was bail-ins, and you yeah. know, bail-outs were 
this kind of 2008 scenario where the government and you know a lot of the financial press are saying, oh no, if we don't step in now to ride in and save the people, the system is going to collapse. Therefore, you know, yes, you citizen, it's correct for us to do this government bailout and you know save save the system that way. So I guess these are some of the different ways that they can try to play it and spin it to socialize the losses. Um, but there's different ways and there's a different person who wears the loss in those scenarios, right? Yeah, there totally is. And, you know, the challenge for them is central banks and fractional reserve currency have made the financial system extraordinarily fragile and extraordinarily vulnerable. Uh, there's this great line from John Stewart during the uh, 2008 crisis, and he was complaining about all the perfect storms. If you remember those, there was like a perfect storm every week. And they kept telling us, no, this, you know, can only happen once every century or once every 7,000 years or, you know, <laughs> once every three heat deaths of the universe. And John Stewart was like, well, wait a minute. Why are these perfect storms happening every freaking week? And he said, I'm starting to think these are not perfect storms. I'm starting to think these are regular storms and we have a crappy boat. And that is what they've built for us. You know, if we go through uh, sort of line by line, you know, when it comes to Silicon Valley Bank or Credit Suisse or Deutsche Bank or Signature, these were all regular storms. Uh, Deutsche and Credit have been, you know, pretty crappy banks for a long time. Everybody's known this. Their stock price has has not budged because everybody knew that the management uh, was pretty bad. Uh, so, you know, the, the sort of larger question is why are all of these regular storms turning into, you know, in anything, a light drizzle is now a perfect storm that requires trillions of dollars of bailout. And of course, when that storm comes, the financial uh, system that has created this crappy boat, right, is that, that, that has created this sort of permanent state of quasi-crisis, they swing into action and their goal is to uh, create human shields. Okay, they go on about, uh, you know, we need the financial system. Grandma will be eating dog food. Uh, they look out. You saw it with Silicon Valley Bank where, you know, a bunch of rich tech bros were going to be bailed out. And you had all these venture capitalists and, you know, like this entire PR machinery looking for some single mother in Ohio, you know, who has to feed her diabetic kids. I mean, it's, it's, it's an operation. It's a psyop. And the goal is to use their victims as shields to get you to pay for their gambling losses. Yeah, that's really part of how the the political game ends up being played, sadly, um, where people who are best able to rally visible victims and put them up in front of the, the TV, the social media, anything, you're more able to win sympathy to your cause. And then people say, oh, okay, we didn't socialize these other bank failures, but for this one, okay, we're going to socialize. We're going to make them whole. We're going to make sure the depositors don't go under. That you know these particular companies can still make payroll. Whereas in years gone by, there were other banks that failed, and they didn't get the same treatment, did they? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, banks go down all the time. Uh, usually, it is a regular storm. Uh, you know what sort of shifted the ground on this? Uh, you know, central banks set the stage with their. They had the fastest rate increases in 50 years, so that started things wobbling. Uh, and then, you know, if you dig into each specific bank, you've always got colorful, you know, blurbs to put in the newspaper. You know, Silicon Valley Bank uh, had some loans where they were taking yachts as collateral and things like this. But the point is that uh, taking, you know, poor quality collateral on a bank does not crash the entire universe, right? So they're, they're sort of coasting along the edge. Uh, you know, post-COVID, when they created the inflation and then sort of uh, knee-jerk 
backlashed against that, they put it even closer to the edge, like right up against the cliff. And then at that point, yeah, it doesn't take much of a storm at all. Lend some money on a yacht and boom, the whole world collapses. And at the same time, we have seen over decades, the US government has been weaponizing its payments systems, right? They've been doing things like, okay, we, we don't like what you are doing as a country, we're going to sanction you. Um, or we don't like what you're doing, maybe FATF will graylist you. Uh, if we don't like what you're doing, we're going to cut you off totally from the SWIFT system, the payment system. So I think that has also been playing into part of this, right? So it's not just the seizure of assets from other governments. It's also, it's literally banning them from interacting with right. the payment systems that other countries and normal people, everyday companies and banks have been using for decades. Yeah. And to those countries, it feels like America's walking around with a gun to their head. Like it's just a crazy person screaming in the street. Uh, you don't even know what's going to set them off. Uh, and, you know, the prospect of cutting a country off uh, from world payments, that that's you're going to have burning cities and riots uh, if you do that to somebody. So that is a very big deal for them. And, you know, I think the weaponization is, I mean, in a sense, you know, they're already discussing doing that against the people in the form of a CBDC. So that would bring us to that wonderful world where, you know, you better watch what you say. Uh, you better, you know, hope that nobody in government takes an interest in you. Uh, just the entire financial system, um, you know, whether it's between countries or whether it's, it's on an individual level, uh, they're really, sorry, my, my cat, they're, um, you know, really using that as a tool uh, against the rest of us. And of course, the timing is amazing because we do have Bitcoin. And so, <laughs> you know, they, they are sort of launching this monetary offensive against really the entire world, starting with foreign countries. Uh, and we do finally actually have an out to this uh, in the form of Bitcoin. Back to the show in a moment. Now, when it comes to securing your Bitcoin, think about what hardware you are using. Coinkites.com make my favorite hardware that you can use in various configurations to help you protect your Bitcoin and interact with your Bitcoin. So most notably, the cold card. The Mark IV is the latest version out. It has two secure elements. It has NFC support, but you can disable that if you don't want it. You can use it easily with software such as Nunchuck or Spectre or Sparrow or Electrum. And it's an extremely reliable performer that you can set up without even plugging into a computer. You don't have to phone home, which is also a fantastic feature with the cold card. So you can use an an SD card, a micro SD card to move things back and forth, or you can use NFC, or you can directly plug it to the computer if you're a beginner. So go to coinkite.com, use code Levera for a discount on your cold cards. And now back to the show. Now, one area on the de-dollarization, I could see a few angles of pushback, right? Now, I think I broadly agree that that's kind of the longer term where it's going. I think maybe the question is more just like, there are steps along the way and we're still early in that process at least as i'm seeing it so a few examples i could give you one i've seen and you might have seen this as well is there was a chart showing the total number of us dollar payments right and that number was still remaining quite high relative to the payments in euros and you know pounds and so on and other fiat currencies that's one example and then the other one is that just because people are doing oil deals in let's say some other currency I think that's not the only factor, right? It's part of it. Maybe it's a small part of it. But certainly, 
it would also be more important to look at what do they hold their savings in, right? Because if some of those other currencies, so as an example, right, even in the UAE, if the UAE still pegs the dirham to the US dollar, and you know, if they are holding US treasuries, then you know, it's not really changing that much, is it, right? So I guess maybe it's, 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 it's a step on the journey uh, that some of these countries, let's say China or Russia and so on, are trying to do deals not in the US dollar, but... Yeah, doesn't it still matter what they're holding, what they are save, saving, holding their savings in? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are extremely strong network effects uh, in currencies. If you take stable coins as, as kind of a test case, I think it's 98.5 or maybe 99.5% of stable coins in the world are denominated in dollars. Nobody forces them to do that. You're free to make a dollar coin in dirham or yen or euro. Uh, but in fact, you know, the market prefers dollars. Why? Because they are the most liquid. So, you know, currencies, uh, trade, it's a very much a winner take all as sort of your, uh, you know, base scenario. Uh, and then on top of that, you know, you've got different questions like are certain forms of transactions being uh, sanctioned or are they being, you know, are they raising red flags? Um, so that kind of goes on top of it. And so I do think that, you know, to say that other countries are diversifying away from the dollar, this is not something that's going to collapse overnight. I think it's more that uh, the network effect of the U.S. dollar is getting weaker. And there is some point where it begins to accelerate quicker and quicker, right? So if people, if 2% of world trade is moving away from dollar, that's not going to have a significant impact uh, however, it is going to feed through to the value of the dollar, and the value of the dollar is that feedback mechanism where you know, banks in Japan may not have an opinion whether they're holding dollars or yen. Uh, what they have an opinion on is what's happening to the price. And so you can get this uh, sort of snowball effect where it's getting bigger and bigger. So some exit from the dollar leads to a decline in price. A decline in price leads to a bigger exit from the dollar, which leads to more decline. You can get this vicious cycle. And I think if you sort of zoom out in the world, in a sense, there are three times more dollars than are needed. Okay, so there are three main ways that the world uses the dollar. Number one, they use it in America to buy and sell stuff, to go have you know, a restaurant meal. Uh, number two, it's used in international trade. The amount of international trade denominated in dollars is roughly comparable to the American GDP. In other words, foreigners use about the same amount of U.S. dollars among themselves uh, as Americans do uh, between each other. And then you've got this third hunk, which is savings, right? So in many countries, if you take a country like Mexico, rich people in Mexico, they're not walking around with millions of dollars in pesos uh, because it's risky, right? So they will treat it a bit like a Bitcoin wallet, <laughs> you know, like, uh, like on an exchange or something where you've just got a small amount on there that you're hoping to use in the near future. And, you know, you may have one or two or three months worth of pesos in there, but the vast majority of their savings are going to be in something more solid. And today, partly because of those network effects, those are parked in U.S. dollars. So when you take those three hunks, the picture is sort of the U.S., it's, if it declines, it's going to go slowly at first. But the thing is that it's got a heck of a way to fall, right? Uh, there is no other country that has three times more currency in the world uh, than it you know, uses at home. So I think that it's somewhere where Americans, we don't need to panic, uh, but we definitely need to be aware that, you know, 
if uh, euro or the yen, for example, have certain uh, reserve currency aspects, they're used in other countries, uh, they're used to park savings. But the mismatch between the amount of yen in existence and the amount of yen that are used in the Japanese economy, it is nowhere near uh, 3x. And so, you know, I'd put it in the category of something to watch that could potentially get much, much worse. And one other point I've seen, and you might have seen this also, our friend Safetyn made a, made a point saying it's, uh, it's like that infamous Ronnie Coleman line, right? Everybody wants to be a bodybuilder, but ain't nobody want to lift these heavy-ass weights. And in currency and capital markets, he's saying it's one thing for people to say, oh, look, we're just going to trade without the US dollar, but are they, are they going to be credible alternatives where they also keep their inflation rate low enough and have open enough capital markets. So I guess the saying is kind of everybody wants to be the world reserve currency, but are you going to are you going to keep the inflation rate low and are you going to actually have open capital markets to facilitate that? Right. Um so and you know a lot of that is transaction costs. Um some of the de-dollarization at the moment is being effectively subsidized by China. Uh this is sort of a long-term goal of theirs. Uh so you know getting discounts for for using their uh yuan. And the you know, key here is going to be really, I think, monetary policy. So if a given country like China, for example, uh, has a bad inflation rate, then people may use the yuan, right? They might use it almost like a coupon or like a Chuck E. Cheese uh, token, like a casino token. Right, like uh, a pass-through sort of, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But they're not actually going to use it as a sink, right? They're not going to park their savings in that currency, in which case the currency gets a very, very, very slight amount of demand. Uh, savings are, you know, really what sustain a currency. If people are just kind of using it uh, in order to transact and they're not actually saving it, uh, then, you know, that's, that's, that's much weaker. And so that's going to be the question. Historically, and, you know, one of the reasons why the U.S. has been so dominant is because uh, the Federal Reserve has been relatively prudent. Uh, not what we'd hope for, but at any rate, compared to other countries, it's been sort of the cleanest, dirty shirt. Uh, and so the question at this point is, you know, partly the costs of empire. Uh, there are certain costs that the U.S. has that are somewhat unique. And so are those collectively going to force uh, the U.S. to be, you know, less prudent than other competing currencies would? And if that's the case, if the U.S. actually runs around with a 5% inflation ongoing, uh, then you would actually see durable demand, and people would not only use the you know Indonesian or uh, Nigerian <laughs> token like they would today, uh, but you could actually get to a point where some of these competing currencies could actually hold on to durable demand. At that point, the U.S. dollar would go in free fall. Yeah, and I think the other element to layer on here is uh, our question of the fictional reserve, right? This, as as you called out earlier. Fictional reserve, or known to uh, the financial press as fractional reserve banking, is uh, a practice where state entities and state-sanctioned or state-permissioned banks are permitted to legally counterfeit. And you and I, the regular person, we are effectively pushed into holding that same inflationary token, right? This is done, it's accomplished through things like legal tender laws, capital gains tax laws that try to stop us from using other things as money. It sort of pushes us towards using the US dollar, the Australian dollar, the pound, the euro, the yen, etc. And holding the government's inflationary fiat. And we could argue that, you know, up until Bitcoin, we didn't have a real alternative. We didn't have a real way to actually operate in a full reserve system. 
I'm curious what you what you see on that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. You know, most of the inflation, at least in the U.S. and uh, I would imagine all over the world, most of the inflation is actually coming out of the banking system. Uh, the about 25 percent of the new dollars, the increase in the money supply. Uh, are counterfeited by the Fed, and the other 75% are counterfeited by the banks. And, you know, the reason is they have this exorbitant privilege where they can, uh, you know, make loans and then put only a small amount of uh, money away to, to allegedly cover those loans. And, of course, they tell customers, uh, bank depositors, they say, your money's here waiting for you, Grandma. Don't worry. Anytime you need it, I got your cash. Uh, but, of course, the money's out uh, running around. So that... Uh, you know, I would call it a fraud. Um, but that, you know, sort of, I mean, that was really the source of central banking in the first place. You know, the reason why we have a Federal Reserve in the U.S., for example, is because that exact hustle, that fictional reserve hustle, uh, it caused the bank panic in 1907. And the banks got together and said, well, this was no fun. We had to pay for our own bailout. Uh, let's fix this. And, you know, who, who, who could possibly pay for our bailout? <laughs> uh, and that's where they... Um, the taxpayers come in. So, right, I think uh, fractional reserve is a big part of this. And what's beautiful about Bitcoin is that, you know, gold, I, I love gold. Gold is my first love. I, I, I will never <laughs> say anything bad about gold. However, gold has a flaw, which is that it is physical. And this is paradoxical because usually people like gold uh, because it's physical. You can drop it on your foot. And being physical means that it, uh, it means two things. One is that it's very vulnerable to government. Okay, if you have physical gold, you can only hide so much in your backyard. And in fact, if everybody's hiding gold in their backyard, then you'll have an entire industry of people who dig backyards for a living to find the gold. Uh, gold storage, like distributed gold storage does not scale very well. Uh, so inevitably, you have to put it somewhere, you have to put armed guards, and now the government uh, knows how to find it. Then, of course, the second problem with gold is that because it's physical, it's very difficult to transmit over distance, right? If you were to tally your monthly spending and to see how much of it was actually handed over hand to hand, in this day and age, it's probably nothing. And so for that reason, gold necessarily uh, in, in the modern age has to be centralized. There has to be some intermediary for example, they give you a gold credit card and they've got the gold in their vault and then you run around and use the credit card. You can use it online. That works just fine. But the flaw is that the gold has to be somewhere and the government knows where it is. They can find it. Uh, and so that means that, you know, I think one of the sort of debate points, for example, when you're talking about gold, um, you know, for years, I think you and I were both advocating gold. And one of the responses would be, well, if gold is so amazing, where is it? Like, why is no country using gold today, right? Why, why did, quote unquote, the market uh, choose fiat? And, you know, my answer would be the market didn't choose anything. Violence chose, uh, you know, in the 19th century, for example, most of your transactions were hand to hand. And so, you know, it was you could have a, a decentralized currency that the government didn't necessarily control. Uh, once you're into the 20th century, that was extraordinarily difficult. And at this point... You know, this is part of why, again, I love gold, but, you know, this is really one of the killer apps of Bitcoin is simply the distance. Uh, you, you, you know, don't need a huge uh, castle to store it in. You can, of course, you can transact it using Lightning Network, for example, far cheaper than you can even transact uh, fiat. Yeah. And importantly, I think it's that even those people who do try to transact in a full reserve context they were stopped out in 
one reason for one reason or another. Now, now I've listened to obviously uh, our other mutual friend Bob Murphy, and he's spoken about how not even like even if we take away the Rothbardian, you know, Austrians, there were Greenbackers who were kind of like a almost like a full reserves, but they they believed in it kind of like a cash full reserve system sort of thing, right? Um, or that you know today the system that we're in where it's you know there are probably two big examples that most people are thinking in recent terms the narrow bank and Caitlin Long's Custodia Bank where there was an attempt to you know create some kind of a full reserve bank within an otherwise fractional reserve banking system and surprise surprise uh, the powers that be did not allow either of those ventures to proceed. Now, you, now the cynical, the, you know, their answer could be that oh, maybe there was something else that they found objectionable about Custodia, you know. But you know, is is the answer really just that full reserve has just been outlawed, <laughs> and that's really why there's not, you know, there's not been a full reserve competitor pre Bitcoin. Yeah, uh, I think you're absolutely right. You know, it's similar during. Uh, the 2008 crisis in the U.S., they were handing loans out to banks, banks that were distressed. And some of the banks said, no, thanks. I don't need your money. We're doing just fine. Famously, BB&T Bank. They said, nope, I don't need it. And they were literally forced to take the money. The claim being that if everybody sees that you don't need the money, but everybody else does, then you'll have an unfair competitive advantage and you could destabilize (laughs) the entire financial system. That's the human shields, right? Always with the human shields. Uh, And so, you know, there's, that's one of the speculations with Caitlin Long's application for her uh, fully reserved bank was that they were concerned that if they have one bank that is completely safe, where, you know, they actually have your money, there's no reason to ever run because your money's just sitting there. Uh, then all of the other banks, you know, people would start to think they're too risky. And, you know, they're right. That's absolutely correct. Everybody would conclude that the rest of the banks are garbage and you should get your money out. Uh, so, you know, again, it's, it, it's kind of a psyop. Uh, and, you know, of course, if you have uh, Bitcoin in there, you could imagine that some people might still use intermediaries for Bitcoin for, for various reasons. Um, people did, you know, there could be services attached to it. Um, you know, you could want, uh, I don't know, escrow or <laughs> there's like sort of side things that you could want to happen to your Bitcoin uh, on its own. So you could imagine intermediaries existing. But the point with Bitcoin is that you do not need it, right? It is a bearer asset. Uh, if for some bizarre reason you'd like to go do fraction reserve, you're able to, uh, but with Bitcoin, you don't have to. And something, uh, just in case there are fractional reservers, I know that a lot of sort of free marketers uh, are fans of free banking and fractional reserve. Um, just kind of highlight, under full reserve, the idea is not that every single dollar has to be in the bank all the time. In other words, you know, you're not removing the banking as a function from society. What you're merely saying is that there's a difference between demand deposits, where you can come and get your money anytime, checking deposits, eh? There's a difference between that and time deposits, right? In a time deposit, you park your money for a period of time, one month, three months, you know, a year. And the difference is that if you are promising that you have money in this moment, then you actually have to have it in the moment, right? On the other hand, time deposits, you'd be free to offer any interest rate. And in fact, you don't have to back time deposits, right? If you look at, say, Ford Motor Company, okay, Ford 
owes certain money right now, and like it has immediate liabilities that it owes right now, like somebody's paycheck that they're about to come by and pick up, all right? And then it has other debts that it owes in five years or 10 years or 20 years. And it does not have to back up those other debts, right? And so similarly, a bank also should work on the same principles. So money that is immediately due should be immediately there. Otherwise, the bank is technically bankrupt. And in practice, you know, checking accounts make up about 20% uh, of bank deposits. Savings account make up about 80%. And so we might expect that would be roughly the ratio where most money would continue to be lent out. It would just be in time deposits, say a three-month or a one-year CD. Banks would have an incentive to get you to park your money in a time deposit because they can relend the money. Uh, you know, if we look at gold custodian fees to kind of get an idea of what the demand deposit, what the bank would charge to just park your money there, not lend it out, they run about a quarter percent a year, right? This is, I mean, this is pretty low. And, you know, indeed, if, mo- if, if the bank knows that you're going to park some of your money in a demand deposit and then it could lend the rest out, then, uh, you know, the bank would likely just offer you free, you know, free custodianship, uh, just like banks today offer free checking accounts because they're hoping to make money off of the, you know, cross sale uh, onto their product. So, you know, if I had to guess what a full reserve bank world would look like, it would look an awful lot like the current one, but it wouldn't have bank panics. Right. And so I also speculate that we'll see a lot less Credit, and I think you probably agree with that as well. I think most of us in the full reserve camp would see there'd be a lot less credit uh, than there is today because of all the rehypothecation for obvious reasons, right? Um, because as you said, there's nothing precluding full reserve credit, aka commodity credit. The issue we take is with circulation credit, and so this is credit that is, you know, created with nothing backing, and this is, you know, what we're seeing today is effectively this banking system that has multiple people believe they are in control of the resources. And that's, that's, that's where we come into the problem, right? Because in a fractional reserve system with circulation credit, what happens if we're thinking through the banking and the accounting and stuff, what's happening is that bank has you know, given, you know, let's say, a $100,000 loan to you, Peter, and now you're running around with that $100,000 thinking you can access those resources, right? Yep. But let's say on the other side... This other person who believes his money is there also, and he believes he has access to it in his bank account, and from both people's perspectives, it's like they both believe, no, I have, I, this is a demand deposit. This is not a time <laughs> deposit. And that's where right. we're running into the issue, aren't we? That, yeah, uh, that's exactly it. And I think that you know, when we're sort of considering what the world would look like, you know, keep in mind that the part that matters is actually real savings. Right. And real savings doesn't change here. So real savings means, you know, uh, if you sort of ignore inflation for a moment, so people would save a certain amount of their money and then they would go out and, you know, they might invest some of that in things like factories uh, or they might lend it to other people. The only difference when you have this fractional reserve, which is printing all this money and, you know, remember about 75% of new dollars are printed in the fractional reserve uh, Ponzi. They're, they're rehypothecated. Um, when you have that huge flood of money coming in, it's it, now it's like you've got this confetti that is bidding up the resources. So in other words, if it weren't uh, for that, you know, sort of new channel of counterfeits, then you, the, you know, savers, 
uh, would sort of bid on resources, like they would bid on workers or factories or steel to build things. Uh, and, you know, you would have this, the people who could pay the most, uh, which would usually be people who think that they can use this asset profitably, uh, they would be the winners. And so they would build the factories and then, you know, the economy grows. The only difference when you get fractional reserve is that now you've got this random flood of essentially fake notes that are flooding in and competing with the real savings. You're not getting any actual new growth because now you've just got more tokens uh, competing, sort of more bidding tickets competing for the original resource. So the fractional reserve didn't create more workers and more steel, right? The only thing you're getting is this redistribution. You're getting it according to whatever the priorities of the banks are uh, who are issuing the tokens. Uh, and then, of course, you know, that then sort of disrupts Right. Rather than having like the best entrepreneur bidding on the asset uh, or, you know, making deals with the savers. Now you've got this noise flooding in where you've got like just a bunch of random tourists who who are, you know, sucking investments away from others. And the end result is that, you know, you get entire industries uh, in the dot com era, for example, you know, you would get pets.com or something that's just squandering enormous amounts of money uh, because they could outbid the sustainable businesses using effectively uh, fiat, using loans from banks uh, that was conjured out of thin air as opposed to actually having to access uh, the real savings markets. Yeah, and so effectively, it's a distortion of the resources, as we were saying at the start. It's the Cantillon effect. It's those people closer to the money printer. They are the ones who win out because they're getting the new money first. Everyone else who gets the money towards the end of the process, they are the losers in that process. Because they, and so typically, savers are getting wrecked there because you, you know, you've just got this fiat and it's, just, it's going down in purchasing power. So that's uh, a real problem. And so I think the other aspect of it is... In full reserve versus fictional reserve or quote-unquote free banker debates, you get this argument of, oh, but the market chose it this way, right? Like they get this kind of, you know, but at the same time, I bet you if you, you know, if you just went out onto the street and you asked the average person and you asked him or her just on the street, hey, that money in the bank account, is it fully and unrestrictedly yours? Or is it more like this kind of lottery ticket you know, a claim or like a fraction of a money market fund. Which one? Which one do you think it is? Obviously, most of them would answer, "Yeah, I, I thought that thousand dollars in my bank account was, you know, my money, exclusive yeah. of my money." <laughs> but it's not the case, is it? <laughs> yeah, and I think for people who um, believe in the free markets, um, it kind of takes a moment to understand the issue here. Uh, the question is not like government. Uh, you know, telling people what to do or like banning frictional or uh, <laughs> uh, fractional reserve per se. Uh, the question is what constitutes fraud, right? And free marketers, you and I are both free marketers. We deeply believe that, you know, if you're ripping somebody off, like if you're scamming with a shit coin, that is fraud and that should be prosecuted as fraud. We're not saying the government regulators come in and write some law against shit coins. What we're saying is that is fraud. And so we should use the existing thousands of year old legal system uh, to prosecute that. And so similarly, you know, when it comes to the question of uh, fractional reserve banking, it's exactly as you say, does the customer, does the depositor actually understand what's happening? If they do not understand what's happening, if they are not competent to have effectively signed a contract uh, parking their money in this bank, then it is an invalid contract. This is thousands of uh, many. <laughs> this is forever uh, standard in, you know, if you make a 
uh, contract with a five-year-old that's not legally enforceable. Uh, if you sell a structured finance product to an 84-year-old who, uh, who has dementia, that's also not enforceable. And if you keep it up, right, if you know this person is not competent and yet you keep trying to sell them something, uh, that is absolutely considered fraud, has been considered fraud forever. And, you know, if we look at fractional reserve, it's very common in many countries that uh, banks will lobby for laws criminalizing contributing to a bank run. So to me, that looks very, very intentional. That looks like they know darn well what they're doing. This is not, oh, I accidentally sold an 84-year-old, you know, some complex product. This is, I know exactly what I'm doing. So at that point, I say confidently, that is fraud. Uh, you know, surveys of depositors, about 74% are not aware that their money's not there. They are not aware that the money's been passed on in the form of loans. They think the money's just parked there, sitting there. Uh, Lynn Alden, uh, we were speaking about earlier, and she makes a great point that banks are essentially uh, leveraged bond funds, right? So grandma thinks that her bank is a coffee can, that she's got a bunch of dollars just sitting there. If she needs them, she'll, she'll swing over. Uh, but the truth of it is that that money's been lent out maybe to sovereign loans to, uh, you know, Mexico or maybe to tech bros, you know, doing the next big uh, green energy project. That money is out, you know, in exotic places doing exotic things. And now, if you sat down with grandma and you said, you know, you said, uh, where do you keep your money? And she says, oh, it's safe. It's over in Wells Fargo. If you asked her, wait, why are you investing in a leveraged bond fund that buys sovereign debt? And, you know, she would say, what? What are you talking about? It's in the bank. It's perfectly safe. She is not aware how fractional reserve works. Uh, maybe someday in the future we'll get rid of government schools and people you know, will actually be taught this. But at any rate, uh, at the moment, uh, empirically, voters do not know what's happening. Uh, that's the reason we have bank runs, right? If voters understood fractional reserve, then if the bank ran out of money, right, like if I go to the grocery store, I understand that sometimes they don't have eggs. And I'm annoyed, but sure, I just come back tomorrow and get more eggs. So why don't we do that with banks, right? So the bank, you know, they hang up a sign. They say, sorry, all out of money. And so maybe we try tomorrow. Maybe they'll get a new shipment of money tomorrow. Why do people not behave that way? Because they do not know how it works. Right. And I think I heard a really good uh, way of summarizing it uh, the other day. It's, um, it's saying it's not there or it's not yours. It's not there and it's not money. Right? <laughs> and so <laughs> it's like people just don't understand the situation the relationship they have in most western world typical banking arrangements because it's just they've set it up like this all around the world there's no yep. real alternative and that even if you were to say oh i'm going to leave out of wells fargo i'm going to go to chase well you, it's it's entirely a fractional reserve system and you right. cannot opt out because the us dollar the the thing that we call the fiat token is you know has been defined as the inflationary thing that's constantly being devalued over time so there's no real escape i mean in small ways you can sort of escape with taking physical cash but you know and that there's the kind of proverbial cash under the mattress but you're still interacting in this broader system where the u.s dollar is going down over time you're still interacting in the in the system where most of the transactions are being done digitally it's hard to do everything with physical cash and coins so it's just kind of people are trapped into a system without even understanding the legal circumstances under which they are there. And I think the other kind of rejoinder I've heard from, you know, fractional reservers is they try to say, well, what if it was all upfront? What if it was all very explicit? You know, like what if, you know, Chase Bank or Wells Fargo very explicitly said, look, Peter, we're going to give you this account and it's kind of best effort. You know, there's no 
kind of guaranteed claim to your right. money, to your money, quote unquote, your money. What about that? How, how would, that, would that be okay or would that be wrong still? Yeah, and, and I think that would be a solution. Uh, we have that in you know, financial products. So, for example, if you want to trade options, naked options or futures, um, at least in the U.S., the, your broker will give you a sort of a test and they'll see if you actually understand how these things work. And that's called a suitability uh, requirement. And those are written into you know, rules. Uh, it's generally the same all over the world. Right again, uh, if the person is 84 with dementia and they're trying to buy a structured finance, right, this is the reason why. Because the financial institution knows that uh, it will be liable, it could even be prosecuted for fraud, uh, if it is selling products that people don't understand. So we could just use that system where, you know, you would literally have to undergo like an exam. You'd have to like answer questions on a test. Uh, you know, maybe you'd have to have a financial advisor or a lawyer present to indicate, you know, so like George Soros can absolutely fractional reserve. The man understands how fractional reserve banking works. <laughs> yeah. Despite his advanced age, I am confident that George Soros knows what he's doing on that count. Uh, but, you know, grandma with the coffee can, you know, if we simply use a suitability requirement um, or rather a suitability standard, which is used in the rest of finance, then pretty clearly she does not understand what's happening. And so what that would do is that uh, you would most likely have fractional reserves still existing for rich people uh, who understand how it works. And the rest of us, uh, you know, would use full reserve. And then when that risky fractional reserve bank went down, it would take out a bunch of rich people with it. And who cares? Yeah. Right. The issue with today's fractional reserve where everybody is forced into it is that everybody includes widows and orphans and widows and orphans are politically sympathetic. So it is inconceivable to have a fractional reserve system where everybody is in it and it's devil take the hindmost. Yeah. And I think one other point I would add from a full reserve perspective, I think the other answer I've heard is that people say, look, at that point, if it's best efforts and it's like a lottery ticket, are we even talking about money at, end, at this point, right? It's just not money. And I think that's the other key point to make that, okay, yeah, if you want to try to trade these, create these kind of tradable claims that, you know, if you're a rich person, you know, buyer beware, caveat emptor, etc. let me disclose, let me kind of push off all the risks onto you, even then, it's still not money. And these, to these tickets, these tokens, do not circulate at par with actual money. And so in a Bitcoin standard, we would be, you know, you've got your Lightning node and I've got my Lightning node and we can transact in a fully reserved system. I, you can say, Stefan, here's my invoice for 100,000 sats. I pay that invoice. It's a fully reserved system. We don't even have to. There's no question of, oh, am I transacting on the fractional system here or the full reserve? No, it's just you're in the Bitcoin system. You're holding your own keys. You're running your own Bitcoin node, ideally. Uh, and we are just natively, without really having to think about it, because all the work is being done at, at the software and the hardware level, it's technically ensuring and keeping us at a full reserve, in a full reserve system. And I think that's the crucial difference, right? Because it's not that, you know, I think, put it this way, let's say there's, you know, a Kraken IOU and a Binance IOU and a, you know, some other Coinbase IOU, they're not all going to be treated equally, right? And right. If that were the case, then it kind of helps us show this idea that Bitcoin is obsoleting fractional reserve banking or fictional reserve yeah. banking. We are, you know, you know, once you've withdrawn 
those coins from the service provider, whether that's Wallet of Satoshi or Cashew or Fedimint or Bitcoin Beach Wallet or Blink Wallet, as they are now called, you know, or your own wallet, ideally, you know in that moment whether the withdrawal request or the payment request has gone through or it has not. And then you know right. at that moment <laughs> whether something is wrong. Yeah, well, I think this is important. You know, there, there's a perception, I think, especially among non-Bitcoiners, that Bitcoin is this really esoteric, complex, weird thing. And actually, no, Bitcoin is what grandma thinks money is. It is the equivalent of a physical coin, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, it's got underlying technology, but, you know, there's a lot of things in my life that have underlying technology. I don't understand a coffee maker, okay? I just know if you push this button and it's plugged in, it's going to do something. Uh, I don't need to understand. I don't care. Uh, I'm interested in the coffee itself. And so, right, in this case, you know, what, what is really, really complicated and will take you years and years of study and, you know, what, what you have to follow all kinds of people and master is the fiat system. The fiat system is absolutely insane. It is Baroque. It's this Rube Goldberg machine. And of course, it's built that way because of the fraud we were talking about before. That's, that's not by accident. It's not that complicated, uh, you know, because they try their hardest and they just couldn't simplify it. No, it is an intentional fraud. It is to deceive people. So I think, you know, partly um, as more understanding of Bitcoin spreads, I think that, you know, a lot of us uh, sort of e evangelize um, Bitcoin. But I think that that's, that's an important detail. Bitcoin is what you think money is. Fiat is not. That's a fantastic spot to finish up there. Um, Peter, I guess uh, final question. What are you looking out for? I know, uh, you know, I'm sure you're going to keep on uh, going with the videos. I hope you do. What are you looking out for in terms of, things coming uh, from uh, the powers that be? Yeah, I think uh, the big three at the moment are going to be the, uh, the banks, inflation, and recession. And all three of those are going to be interacting here. Banks all over, sorry, all over the world, uh, they broke a lot of things all at once. And I think there's going to be a lot of consequences to that, not just in the U.S. I think we're going to uh, start seeing those in more and more countries. So... Uh, I think it is going to be an exciting year, uh, not necessarily in a good way. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's a great way to put it. So listeners, make sure you follow my friend Peter. He's got some great content. He's got some great videos. He's got a Substack, so go and subscribe to that. Uh, and Peter, thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's always a pleasure, Stefan. Show notes are available at stefanlevera.com. Make sure to share the show with family and friends if you are enjoying it and if you are learning something here. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.